0: there can be coarse language and adult concepts in our program, so please watch out for little ears that might be running around if you've got your podcast playing, or pop on some headphones, and that way no one can get offended but you. The National Young Writers Festival is really unique because we're all young people creating and curating for other young people. We wanted this festival to be interactive. We wanted people to happen across other people that they maybe had never met before, never thought to meet before, and that's sort of the playfulness of it. Rights for Festivals proudly presents the National Young Writers' Festival, supported by Writing New South Wales and Create New South Wales. With Pamela Cook and Kel Butler from the Rights for Women podcast. This panel is Being Edited with Anupama Pilbrow, Nayuka Gori, and Hella Ibrahim, talking all about the process of having your work edited and how much more difficult that process can be when you happen to be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander or a person of colour really we just want people to come to the festival even if you just come for a day uh, we want you to see what it's about we want you to interact with our artists and our audience and just understand what we're trying to do and why it's so unique and so special to young writers in australia
1: Um, thanks, everyone, for coming to the Being Edited panel. Um, before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the Awabakal and Warmai people, who are the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, um, and I'd pay my respects to elders past and present and extend that respect to any Aboriginal people who are here with us today. Um, and I'd also like to acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and that this was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, and I think we're going to try and introduce ourselves. So I'm Anupama Pilbrow, I edit the Suburban Review, um, and I'm also a poet. Um, and the Suburban Review has put out a couple of kind of focused issues that um, champion the work of like different marginalized communities in Australia. So we've published um, one issue that's focusing on writers and artists of color. We've published um, a few issues that have been in collaboration with the Stella Prize, publishing women and non-binary writers from Australia. Um, and so this is a panel that's like very close to my heart because. It's something that has affected me, and it's also something that I'm continuing to... Like, I'd like to challenge um, the domination of white narratives in Australian writing, and I think that my magazine has been trying to do that, and I want to I want to continue that conversation.
2: Uh, my name's Hella. I um, am the editor of Jed Press, which is an online publication that publishes exclusively people of colour. So we don't really do special editions or anything like special issues, um, mostly because it's a year-round focus, um, and not just on writers of colour but different intersections so we don't really have a queer issue or like whatever issue um just because it's not my thing um but it is same in terms of challenging dominant white narratives and all of that um I don't really write I mostly just edit so yeah that's that's me um hello my name's Nayuka um
3: yeah I'm a writer I don't edit um I have a lot of experience being edited
1: Cool. Um, I think maybe we can try and talk about, or at least Helen and I can talk about maybe our domains of editing. And then if, if you want to talk about the kind of um, experiences you've had with editors so far. Um Suburban Review publishes fiction, nonfiction, um, poetry, and also comics. And we tend to edit all of that work. And the way that we approach all work is that it's unfinished. Um, so we go in looking for areas that the writer has done well and we can like comment on that and, and provide feedback, but we also look for areas that need improvement. And I think it's important for us to be able to present both of those things simultaneously because um, it shows like a more kind of holistic appreciation of the of the work. Um, and we publish a quarterly journal, so we're kind of always Always writing, always publishing work, always working on writing.
2: Yeah. So I tend to, so in my day job, um, the editing I do in my day job, which is just for education textbooks, is more project management than anything. Um, Because there are, like, if you're, not everybody's a fiction writer kind of thing. So there are, in the same way that there are just several genres of writing, there are several types of editing. So the type of editing I do um, on one side is kind of more project management, like, book management and the stuff I do for Jed Press is really more um, so there's a bit of there's copy editing there's structural editing I think most of what we talk about although I say structural editing is where most of the magic happens where um, the friction of being edited as a writer happens but I mean even something like yeah changing like punctuation and syntax in terms of copy editing and line editing um, where it can be you'd still definitely need the right editor not to fuck, not to, are we allowed to swear? Yeah, Yeah, okay. Not to fuck up your work, basically, um, or change the nuance of what you're trying to say. Um, So yeah, that's, so most of the editing I do is kind of a combination of like, of everything like I look at every, I look at a piece holistically as well as line by line just to get a sense of what you're trying to say beyond the actual words and I think that's I think that's a big part of editing like as an editor you're never really just looking at what's on the page you're looking at it in a much wider context and what are you like what is the wider context of what you're trying to say and then trying to work with like without taking away anything from the author's voice. Um, or what they're trying to say. And for me, so for me, it's not so much I would go in with the expectation that the work is unfinished, although I do think all writing could use a good polish um, to smooth out the edges. Um, yeah, so I don't look at it as necessarily unfinished, but I do try to do my best to really bring out what the point of it is. Like, if you've written something, even if it's, like, A flash fiction piece you're trying to say something and a lot of what I focus on in my editing is making sure that whatever it is you're trying to say is coming across as clearly as possible and sometimes that means I make very few edits because you've just done a great job expressing yourself otherwise like um because you can be you can be a really decent writer right and you can have like a really brilliant idea and a really good point to say but it's just not coming across and so that's kind of my favorite part of editing where it's just shaving away all the unnecessary bits to just bring out Exactly what you're trying to say. So that's the kind of editing I do, I guess.
3: I'm really so as not an editor, but I think a lot as a writer. I often feel that there is a huge power imbalance. Particularly, I've never real I've never been edited by a black person before. Um, so for the most part, my editors are white people. Um, so there's a really huge power imbalance because often they're from institutions and I'm a freelance black writer. Um, so, yeah, I often think that... And we're writing in English as well and, like, that's a colonizer's language. So it's all, like, for me, the relationship often resembles or can feel like a metaphor for colonisation. And I don't know if that's... I'm just melodramatic or whatever, but it does feel like it's a power thing so often sometimes which is fucking annoying like there will be no editing like it's like have you fucking read this and then it'll go on the website and then I'll spot a mistake or you know it'll go to print and I'll spot a mistake like that's really bad like that's come on like no one's that good um Yeah. So on one hand, you want people to read your work, but on the other hand, it's like you still want to be you. You want it to sound like you, and it's like this, yeah, this like little tug of war. But like being edited well is also like this really beautiful trait.
2: Yeah, yeah. Like the fact of matter is, if an editor's supposed to care about your work, so if they haven't touched it at all, or if they haven't like, like even on pieces where I haven't really done much editing, I've usually sent a little, like, yeah, I've, like, you know, changed this, changed that, like, very minor details. But, you know, I don't – usually – okay, I actually edit everything except poetry is one of the things that I don't feel the need to, like, really go in and, like, fuck around with it a lot. Um, But you need an editor who actually gives enough of a shit about what you've written to read it, to show you that they've read it. And even if they have no, like – even if they have no corrections, like, I always give feedback, right? So if I love, like, even when I'm editing, right, so you've got, like, a Word document, and you're making your, like, track changes and your comments. I do make a point, if I see something really good, like, just make a comment, like, I love this line, or so true, you're right on the nose, like, just to, yeah, just to bring that across. Because you're right, there's a, it's a huge power imbalance, right? Because, um, as you say, like, institutions are mostly white, so you're already, like, even, like on a lot of different kind of, intersections so you've got uh, like in terms of financially they're paying you so there's a power imbalance there um they decide whether or not you're getting published they are white and so you're already in this like you're like we're on colonized land so automatic there's an automatic power imbalance and so you do like as an editor you have to be very careful of how you're doing it and as far as black editors go Um, there's a fucking dearth of them. Um, There's, like, there are not a lot of editors of colour. Like, it's one of my main areas of interest, the lack of editors of colour, especially when it comes to First Nations editors. Like, there is not, like, in full-time jobs. Like, there are actually a lot of, there are actually a lot of, like, First Nation editors, but they're not being hired in these institutions and they're not being, like, they're not in full-time paid work or they're not in, like, blah, like, they're doing one-offs or, you know... um, like a like a editing a special issue. See, this is yeah. actually one of my problems with special issues, like where it's like you know, without mentioning any names, but like let's say a um, popular Melbourne publication is doing a um, as special Indigenous issue. Hang on, to-
3: I'm just going to pull you up there because I know a lot of Black people who are working on it, and I know it is easy to look on them. I I understand what you're saying, but I feel like being facetious and having a room full of people laugh undermines the work of particularly the black women involved. So, like, it's – I'm just like, more having a go at the people in the room who are, like, having a snide giggle because it's
2: – yeah. What yeah. I'm saying – I'm not actually saying it's a bad thing. What I'm saying is it's a bad thing that this is the only time that they get friggin' hired. This yeah. is This is my problem yeah. with that. Yeah, no, like, which is where it's like if you weren't – <laughs> If there was more of a focus on an ongoing thing rather than having like this one time we did this one thing and forget I'm not going to talk about First Nations let's talk about queer like you know qu- when you're having a special queer issue and you get a special queer editor to do it and that's fine but why isn't this an ongoing thing? Why isn't that just an inherent part of what you're doing? Why isn't this like why aren't you hiring queer editors like and actually hiring and paying them to do this work? That's actually my problem with it. But anyway. No that's fair. i just
3: like oh uh, you know, yeah I've got good I know really good people working oh, in they it. We might
2: be talking about different things. I
1: don't think I don't we all <laughs> know. Um, I think in response to what you're saying, Nayuka, about um, having work go to publication without being edited, my experience, we've had a lot of staff members at the Sperm Review and I've talked to a lot of different editors. I think there is like a, a lot of fear or paranoia or um, anxiety that white editors encounter when they're dealing with kind of marginalised writing. And I think that like, I've encountered that. I've seen that in my team. And it's something that we try and tackle, like I'll I'll explain the kind of the programs that we do to tackle that. But I think that there is this fear that they don't have the right to edit this work, which I think is like in some ways well-intentioned, but also illegitimate because, you know, how else are they going to read this work critically if they're not engaging with it as editors? And and I think that, you know, at the Suburban Review, the way that we do that, I've got a lot of white editors on my team. Um, is to always have paired editing so if we're like editing a person of color I always make sure that there's an editor of color involved as well Um, if I can sometimes you know my staff disappears but I think that there has to be this kind of like um, education process to allow white editors to see that it is possible to actually engage with the work that they're publishing like there doesn't have to be this kind of distancing it
2: is possible but are they taking up a space yeah that's
0: my question I think that there are a lot of
1: editors of color like I can think of 10 that are hired in right full-time work Not hired full-time but That's, the thing yeah. the thing is that I work with like literary magazines and there aren't any full-time positions there but I don't I don't really know what happens when we get to those kinds of institutional levels
2: I yeah so I mean if we're talking traditional publishing there aren't a lot of editors of color in that um and yeah, no, mag- smaller magazines or even larger magazines are doing better. But like, if you want to talk like traditional book printing or whatever, no, there aren't a lot of, there are, but a lot of them, th- they exist, but not, it's not, it's still, if you still walk into an organisation, that's still very wide. In terms of structural barriers, starts from birth, right? Um, so like, <laughs> I mean, how far back do we want to go? Um but what i found mostly, so a lot of jobs require, obviously, like, it's the catch-22 of you need experience. Um, you need, like, five years' of experience for an entry-level job. How the hell are you going to get that? Um, but you need, you know, a certain level of experience. For some reason, they also, a lot of places demand that you have a degree, um, even though, my personal opinion, degrees are useful um, and they look good on your resume and they do help with networking, but fundamentally to do the work of an editor, what you, like, having a good basis is good, but you like a lot of it comes down to training and a lot of it comes down to like hands-on experience. But anyway, um so there's already like so there's already that. You generally to get the so to get this experience, like this five years experience to enter a traditional publishing house, you at this I'm not saying you have to do this because a lot of I'm from my own experience, you do a bunch of unpaid internships. That gives you the experience on paper. Um, they're either unpaid or underpaid. Um, so you're already on the back foot there, depending on how well you can network. So if you're, like, even a little bit socially anxious or whatever, you're, again, on the back foot because you haven't talked to the right people and you haven't, like, met enough people and get ins like that. So there are barriers.
3: So you have to be a confident, wealthy person.
2: Essentially, And, yeah, and, like, honestly, like, I have, I've been, like, rejected from jobs because they didn't think I would fit a team culture, right? And so it's kind of, like... And it is... There are plenty of studies done on this where having a certain level of melanin or having a certain look means that the person in front of you in within the, the 30 seconds that they take to make a judgment on you they're you're already again on the back foot because you know and then you have to like code switch a lot of the time just to like get them to like you and to hire you like fit a team culture so there's there's a lot of that like there is a, like there's a lot of racism involved um there is a lot of classism there is a lot of like again like not everybody is going to go to university, um, People think at university is just this, like, easy thing that you waltz into. Actually, it's not, like – and even if you do, you end up with, like, 50K of hex debt. God knows how you're going to pay that because God knows editing does not pay a lot even in a traditional publishing house. Um, so, yeah, you're fighting a lot of – like, in terms of structural barriers, it is <laughs> – I'm not saying there aren't any barriers for wealthy white people, but there are fewer. Well, I did want to ask. So, you don't – so, you're on the um, – I'm usually on the editing side. You're on the, like, you're the one being edited. So what are, like, I guess what I'm interested in, just in terms of my own improvement to make sure that I'm doing the best job I can, what are some of the, like, mistakes editors make with you? Um,
3: I mean, there was just that straight up not engaging with the work in any kind of real way, um, which I think is bad for them because they've got shit to sell. You want it to, you know, you want it, it's all, it's also your name on it, you know, um, I think also, though, because I write a lot about rape, like race and black stuff. Um, I think there's a tendency for white editors to want to like pull back a bit. They're they're afraid, I think, of which can feel really stifling. And also, I remember a friend of a friend of um, me and my partners was saying there's. Um, like the chilling effect in like in law. So if people are afraid if particular legislation, even if it's untested, makes it kind of impossible to say particular things, even if it can affect the way that people write or the way that people are being edited. So we have it often around defamation in Australia, like quite, um, as I'm sure you both know. So people are really kind of testy about particular things. Um if I want to call someone a white supremacist, it often has to go to a legal team first, even if it's like quite, you know, if they are neo-Nazis. Um, so it's just, yeah, anyway, it's, there's the whole chilling effect thing. Um, I think there is also just I th- like tokenism as well. Um, like it's not so much in the, you know, the process might be really nice but you know that you're only, like, that you might be edited really well, you know, it'll come out really beautiful but you feel like you're only there for a particular reason. Um, And it's like, do you take those opportunities knowing that it's not, you know, their motivations aren't great or do you just, like, not just say no? Um, Yeah. I think, though, like, for the... it, it's often been middle-class white women who've edited me, um, and I think sometimes that's reflected in the outcome. Is all what I'll say.
1: Yeah, um, I've done. I'm a writer as well, and I've had some experiences with um, editing. And I think like one of the more practical kind of issues that I've come up with is if I write in like if I write a bilingual poem, um, there's there's no proofreading or checking of like my spelling or. Or there's issues with typesetting. Like I had a poem with um, like a Hindi section in it. And the typesetting kind of program that was being used for the book didn't have like Hindi capabilities. And so it was spelled wrong in the end. And I I, like tried to fix it. Did they put it backwards? They didn't put it backwards. But um, there's like compound consonants and the typesetting program didn't allow it. So essentially like my poem was spelled wrong. And I did everything I could for like weeks to try and get them to fix it. But to download like a different program would have cost them thousands of dollars. So they didn't do it. And I think that's just, like, a really practical consideration to take into account, which is, like, if you write bilingual work, sometimes it's not going to be checked and it's not going to be spelled right. And I think that, that needs to change. Like, we do need we literally need teams of kind of people of colour editing these works because there's all these kind of um, sections that just don't get considered.
2: Yeah, I am... Um, not that, like, I've ever published in Arabic or anything, but, like, Arabic, same thing with the programmes, where it's, like, Arabic is funny because it's written... Um, yeah right to left um and then if you put it like let's say you've copy pasted it into a different like from a word document to a different program that doesn't read Arabic it ends up being written backwards and disjointed it looks absolutely ridiculous absolutely ridiculous like I used to work in a library and they they have an Arabic section I was the they hired me because I spoke Arabic not that they admitted that but that's fine I got a job so I don't care um But they they like their sign for the Arabic section was literally, like firstly, they'd written the word for Arabic in Arabic is Arabi, but what they had written was Arabic in like in disjointed backwards letters. It was ridiculous. And like this is like they made a sign and it's just still in the library. And it's, stuff like that's really irksome, yeah. Um, hmm. um but yeah, and in terms of how do you guys feel about italicization?
1: Oh, I am so against italicizing. <laughs> words in like different languages yeah. i think that it i mean in my style guide like we just don't do that because there's no reason that that work should be othered in that way um, it's natural to the people who are writing and it. it's na- it's going to be natural to read to a lot of our audiences and i think that we need to stop doing that
3: i i feel i fucking hate so i like often if um we try to use aboriginal words um even if they're like in english but used in a different way or like, or with like kind of change, yeah. Anyway, I often feel, and I, I think this is why I think about colonization a lot with writing um, using black words. Often they want you to, which totally can destroy what you're writing, like over explain what that term means. It's like, why, why can't people just fucking Google it? Like, who cares if they have to Google it? You know, it'll take twenty. I, and seconds. And
1: also, why is uh, like you know, white audience the target audience for that piece? Like, why can't a work be written and think you know maybe the target audience is whoever the, the author wants it? We assume a white audience. I think. I think that needs to change. Yeah.
2: But even um, yeah, even with that, with the over-explaining words, where it's like you don't you don't even need to Google it. Like I I like we well, you don't know every word in the English language. You pick it up from context, right? So it's not like it's not like somebody's used like. A massively big word, I can't I don't know any big words, so I can't throw out an example but like let's say I come across a big word that I don't know. I, you can pick it up from context just, where it's like, figure it out, figure it out. It'll take you three extra seconds of brain time, and that's it. And then if you don't get it, then you can Google it. It's, yeah
1: um, but with respect to that italicization, um, I think I'm in like a Facebook editors of color group, which any emerging editors should try and join because and, and I've, I've tried to have that conversation with others. I think that a lot of editors of color, are in agreement that we should just stop italicizing words and i've only like these days i only see it in like majority white publications like i don't know i see it in the paris review i see it in the age stuff like that
2: yeah so what we were talking about earlier just to like shift a bit in terms of things like that so um let's say you know you've written something your work's being edited and you've written something and they've italicized a word um, I don't think, like, we were having this conversation where it's like, I don't think a lot of writers know that you can argue with an editor. Like, it's just their opinion. Yeah. It's just their freaking opinion. Yeah. And, like, there are some things that I will absolutely fight you on. Um, although if you put up a convincing enough case, then I won't fight you on it. Or if I feel that you feel really strongly about something, then that's fine. But generally speaking, all of my edits are suggestions. You can take them on. You can discuss it. You can, like, you do not have to agree to everything. I think if...
3: Like particularly when I first started writing, I felt like there were like they were the boss. They feel like they're your boss. Like they, yeah, it's a power imbalance thing. Yeah. yeah, I don't think people know that. Particularly if you're you know a young person of color writing, it's like you're so used
2: to white people telling you what. To, like you go because you go through an. I'm not even kidding. You go through an entire school system, depending on what school you go with your you know teachers. I had a teacher for real. I wrote my name on because so how is my. My name since birth, but it's not my legal name. So, like on a class assignment in year seven, I wrote like I signed it all, like I typed up my name, and it was like Samia Hella Ibrahim. And my teacher had literally crossed – I had no, actually, she didn't cross it out. She um she wrote on top of Hella, she'd written "ooh scary." And I was like, "What?" And she's like, "You know, was that like a like a hell thing, like trying to be cool?" I'm like, "That's my name, like <laughs> where they they like yeah." Um, but you go through a schooling system of white people like assuming things and telling you how to write and telling you what to do and, like, if you try to write in language, they'll be like, no, this is wrong and you're so used to being marked down and being told and being controlled that, you yeah, eventually you start writing and then you just assume that the editor is just always right on what they say goes and you have no power. You have power in this relationship. They won't accept your work if they don't want it. And that's the other, like, writing for... This is a side note, but don't write for free. If they want your work, they will pay for it. But anyway.
3: But, it, it's like, it's hard to advocate. It is actually hard, like, to tell anyone in the world like no this is what I think unless you you know really one of those people power to you but like it is particularly if you have to send them the invoice you know it is hard to yeah push back Ugh.
1: yeah I wanted to talk to you guys about that because I don't really know how to do it and maybe if anyone in the audience has tips about this like I, I've been in situations where I've been edited and I, I suspected that some of these edits had to do with kind of like racialization of my work and I wanted to be able to say like this is what I suspect, can we go over it? But it's a really hard thing to bring up if, if it hasn't been pointed out to you because you you suspect or you're paranoid that something about your cultural background is impacting the way that your work is being perceived. I don't know how to raise that with editors. Um, and I do my best as an editor to try and make sure that, like, authors know that the work, that the suggestions are just suggestions. Like we, we put that into every kind of edited um, document. Like if you want to challenge this, please bring it up with us. Please question these things. These are all suggestions. Like we make it very clear that they are suggestions and I'm not sure that that's done kind of more kind of widespread, but I don't know how to, how to maintain that autonomy over my work. Uh,
3: I don't now. I just explain why I want it to stay the way that it is. Um, yeah. it doesn't have to be an argument or, like, really combative. Like, it's just you asserting yourself. I don't think it has to be, like, a a big thing. Um, Unless – sometimes if it's, like, for a legal reason, like you can't do whatever, you know, fucking – okay, Um, sure, we'll follow the law. Um, Yeah, but I think it's just, like, if you know in your gut that you're right and that it is what it is, then – I think, yeah, knowing that you're right is – because otherwise it'll turn out shit and, like, watered down. But I don't know how to – yeah,
2: yeah. See, I think the problem isn't so much with the writers as with the editors because you do, like, not every editor is going to be amazing, right? I think it's probably a sign of a not great editor if they, one, haven't actually told you why they've changed something. Like, I do also – if it's not just, like, a simple comment, if I've changed something, like, I'll either explain the grammar um, and then – because some people have very valid reasons for not following – and I – have a whole special rant about the Queen's English grammar, like, whatever. Um, yeah, so I don't, don't actually it follow up, it myself. Right? Yeah, no, honestly, like, grammar, like, again, I shouldn't say this is an editor, but grammar is bullshit. Um, it is, though. No, it is, because you're basically, like, where, I think I had this conversation with you, Ray, once, where I was, like, where you had, um, I think it was a, I can't, it was maybe a yawl or something, and you'd, like, spelt it in a certain way or done it in a certain way, and I'm, like, um, and, you, and then you tried to change it, and I'm like, no, leave it as it is, because you're actually using a different dialect of English. There are valid dialects of English that don't follow the Queen's English grammar, and, like, just making sh- – like, having everything be, like, full stop here, and this phrasing, and don't split an infinitive, or it's just like, this is bullshit, like – and it's also part of like bringing out how you use like your unique voice um I just don't respect English (laughs) (laughs) like it's which is bad for
3: maybe it's good for a writer I feel like the editor maybe has to have a slightly more respect than I do
1: oh I was just gonna say I think that style guides should be flexible for those things like like uh, we have a style guide that's like if the writer wants to mess with like English let them be consistent and just deal with that, and if they're not, then we'll, yeah,
2: yeah. Because there's a difference between doing, like, writing something one way in one part of an essay and then another way in another part of an essay, um, like, that Make keep it consistent, definitely. I feel like, as an editor, you have to have a good understanding of it. Like, you have to actually come from a very solid base to be able to see how somebody is fucking with it and how... Because everything follows grammar rules. This is, again, with the um, AAVE, where it's like, actually, it's a proper dialect, it has its own rules. You can't just spit some shit out on the page and expect not to be edited that way but um
3: oh, can I, I've got some questions for you two as editors well how do you deal with people who d- genuinely uh either have written something shit or have written something that perhaps isn't their place to write have you ever had to deal with that
2: I have stories yeah, yeah well,
1: I've definitely had to deal with that um like, on one occasion, we actually, it was a digital issue of the magazine, we just cancelled it because we couldn't deal with, like, there was a number of issues with a number of different works in it. We just didn't get, like, good quality submissions for one magazine. And so we just cancelled it and, like, paid kill fees, I think, because we couldn't, like, there it was, just, it was just an insurmountable problem. But then we've had stuff on smaller scales where it's just, like, someone has written a sentence that is, like, slightly problematic and... Um, you know, maybe I'll notice it. Not everybody in my team is going to notice it. Maybe like some of our editors of color are going to notice it. And we try to like delicately bring it up um, with suggestions to fix it. But also, we just have a hard rule if we're not going to publish something that's problematic like that. And you know, that's what kill fees are for.
2: I think. See, I don't need kill fees because I don't commission as such. And if I did commission, then I would work with them to get it to a point where I want to. I have had to reject entire pieces on the basis of. Because I make it very clear, like, I follow the concept of own voices, right? So if you're writing outside of your own experience, I'm not going to publish it. Um, and so, and again, it depends. <laughs> um, Controversial. Right? Um, but, but basically, because it's uh, it, usually, like, it usually results in bad writing to start with. But anyway, um, so I've had to, yeah, straight up reject. And it depends. If this is somebody I've worked with before, because it's happened where somebody's, that I've published several pieces by, and then they've written something, and it's like, it's super not your thing. Like, I am... I do hope you continue to, like, pitch me stuff, but I am not publishing this. This is not your place to speak on. Um, so I've definitely given that feedback before. Sometimes if they – somebody I haven't worked with before, I get a lot of submissions from white people, straight up reject. Um, but I also had – so I had somebody – So
3: speaking about someone else like someone else's experience. Yeah,
2: basically, like a refugee story. I've gotten a couple from different people. A couple of people have written refugee stories, and I've said, oh, you know – have you experienced this? And they're like, oh, no, no, I'm just blah. Like, I just, I went to Thailand and, like, it was blah. So that's just, like, and usually I'm polite about it. Sometimes I just ignore your email. Um, otherwise, like, I do kind of explain, like, hey, actually, no. Um, but I did have this one, my favourite my favorite time was um, somebody had pitched me a series um, about, uh, so they were um, a person from a mixed background and they'd pitched me, like, a series of, like, um, stories from the mixed background perspective and they were organising all the writers, and then they sent, me, um, they sent me a piece by like, and I should have read his email properly, because he'd actually explained this in the email, but I didn't, I just opened the piece, started reading. Um, and it was a white woman who lived in South Africa, and that was her, mixed, her, her idea of being a mixed person as being a white South African in South Africa. And she's written, this, she's written this narrative, no, no, it gets better. She's written this narrative about how out of place she felt, and how like, you know, the, the other the, the black kids wouldn't play with her, and she felt really out of place. And then one time she like was thinking about the bus system and how it was so stupid that white people had a bus and the coloreds had a bus. So she was like, no, I'm going to fuck with the system and got on the colored bus. And like sat in it, and it didn't occur to her. And she honestly wrote, she honest to God likened herself to Rosa Parks. She literally wrote, "I felt like Rosa Parks." I'm like, no, no, no. So uh, yeah, just again, like where I, that was probably the harshest email I've ever had to send. Where I was like, <laughs> where it's was just like, I just got really mad about that one. But I didn't, I didn't even reject. I didn't bother rejecting her directly. I just went back to the um, to the guy who series, and I'm like, nah, nah. What were you thinking? This is an absolute, absolutely not. Um, so. Yeah, just think. Yeah, that happens where I've just had to, like, I'm, yeah, I don't love rejecting submissions. So when I get, mm. so that's one thing, right? But if I get something that's written um, where it's like, you can see the writer's fairly unpolished, like, it's a bit, it's not problematic, but it's just a bit shit writing, and that's where I was like, that's part of what I enjoy doing where I'm like, okay, so we're going to work together to bring this up to read, to make it readable because I can see that there's a grain of an idea here. Um, and then if we can get it to a readable standard, great. If we can't, honestly, sometimes I just publish it because like they're – and I have had writers who have been writing for me from the start and you can see their like level going up and that's the whole point. Like the whole reason I started doing what I'm doing is to – because I think I feel as writer—I don't know—other people can tell me—but writers of color don't get as many opportunities to write mediocre shit and to write like yeah, so or to get opportunities to kind of flex their fingers where they're still getting paid and where they're being like nurtured. Whereas, I, and we're already on a back foot; like we need all the extra help we can. So that's usually how I deal with that.
1: Yeah, just adding to that, I, I think I think you're totally right about um, like writers of color not being given the opportunity to be mediocre. And I think that ultimately, what I want is for like writers of colour, artists of colour to be seen as unexceptional and unmarked in the way that white writing is, because there is so much boring white like writing. Everything we
2: say is revolutionary. It's like, you're so inspiring. It's like, no. Yeah, I
1: want some like boring writing from writers of colour.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah. I mean, try to be interesting when you're writing, but you know.
3: Are you the change you want to see in the world, though. <laughs>
2: I think I am. But actually, on the own own voices thing, um, Horn Prize.
3: Oh, yeah, that was like my one in the email. So I was like, let's talk about this shit. So what happened? Does anyone want to give the context? I've just been looking at Twitter, which is probably not the best place to.
1: Yeah, I don't think I knew about it until your email. And then I went and read about it. But I've heard about it from other people today as well. Um, I can do a brief spiel. Um, the Saturday paper has their annual horn prize um, for an essay and I think they, there's like a big cash prize if you win. 3,000 words for $15,000 pretty good pretty good money. This year in the guidelines for submissions um, there is a sentence that said something like um, we'll not accept well I think it was really specific but it, essentially the content was we're not going to accept essays written from uh, that are about content that the writer hasn't experienced.
3: It, I don't know if it was all of it but the one thing that I saw was um, people who aren't Aboriginal and or top, who aren't First Nations can't submit on that. So I don't know yeah, if there, there was was any, I think there was a couple of different, few, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, I read it, I read it. see, I, I found out about it when I like, yeah, no, no, like, because I, I heard about it on Twitter and so I like saw somebody sharing the article why I refuse to judge the Horn Prize over a restrictive rule change by David Maher. But it, he did actually list what the rules were. So the Horn Prize, uh, blah, 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 narrowed the rules and issued a list of what the Horn Prize was not seeking or accepting this year. Essays by non-Indigenous writers about the experiences of First Nations Australians. Essays about the LGBTQI community written by people without direct experience of oh, this community any other writing that reports to represent the experience of those in any minority community of which the writer is not a member. Can I just read this? Like, so this is David Ma. I messaged Jensen at once. I've been a big critic of such restrictions. Men can write about women, gays about straights, blacks about whites. You judge, as always, by quality. That's likely to be higher when there's direct experience, but you can't disqualify for the lack of it. And if we're not going to accept whites writing about Indigenous experience, how can we have whites judging Indigenous writing? I'm like, so disqualify yourself from the judging? That seems like the most reasonable thing to do here. But anyway, that's, yeah.
1: Yeah. And it's
2: totally, like, there's so many issues with that. Uh, and then they cancelled those guides, those guidelines. Like, the two judges quit over it. And so they decided that instead of changing the judges, they would just get rid of those rules because, like, fuck people of colour, right? Yeah.
1: Which is ridiculous because it wasn't a rule change. It was from the beginning of the prize. Like, the rules were were there for everyone to read and it's just they didn't notice. For... It's just so random. <laughs>
3: like, how easy it is for those sort of things to buckle under white pressure, even just like the tiniest bit of white pressure, and they will cave and like completely change the rules. Yeah. It's fucking stupid. They were really gutless.
2: It just, it bothers me because it's like, it's like, it's such a tiny, it's such a, it's, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. If you're not queer, don't write about queer shit, right? Can you imagine how fucking bland it would be anyway. Yeah, no, well, that's what I mean. It would lead to bad writing anyway, but, like, regardless. Like, it seems like such a very easy, simple thing to do. But, the like, it really bothers me because this is just so symptomatic of whiteness, right, where it's, like, any challenge, even slight to anything, and then you've got people fucking marching in the streets with Jews will not replace us. Like, that is just, like... The, uh, i'd like to call it the obama trump effect obama got in and then they elected trump to like really reassert their power kind of thing and so it's like you had two lines two guidelines where it's like hey maybe consider don't doing this and the fact of the matter is you know people would have done it anyway it's what they do people like they flout those rules all the time people will submit whatever like people will write whatever the hell they want to um but the minute yeah the minute whiteness felt at all challenged there was like judges throwing hissy fits and guidelines being cancelled and like oh all this bad press and it's like could you like it's just it's allyship at its weakest form if you will
3: it would have been like I've written for the Saturday paper and I've really applauded Eric I think it was Eric who would have I don't know who did it Eric would have made the guidelines I think it was fucking awesome and like it was a good thing. It was a good thing. It was that was something they should have been proud of, and something they should have like. It was an opportunity for them to assert, you know, their values instead, kind of caving, and that like that just makes me really sad. Anyway, I, so I'm guessing
2: they must have been threatened with pulled funding or something. Like if I had to guess, it's probably what happened. Um, what else? I always put in my identifiers, my racial identifiers and religious identifiers in buyers and there was a whole actually nationally it was it was to do with this festival actually where it came up and I kind of explained personally I always do it because um I would like rather not have bigots find out later and then like l- hear stuff like no thanks um so I'm just telling you and if you don't like you don't like what I am or who I am, you can fuck off. Um, but that's my personal thing. I don't necessarily recommend everybody doing it. I definitely don't think you should tokenize yourself if it's uncomfortable. And this is going to sound like probably weird slash harsh, but, like, it's not unique. Like, I mean, it, it is, we're all unique special powers. But, the, you know, the, there are other things about you that are interesting. There are other things about you that make you special that is not come down. that does not come down to your race. If that's something you write about a lot, great. It'll come out in your writing. You won't need to say it in a bio.
3: I would say if you're questioning whether your race matters to you enough to put it in a bio, like for me that kind of feels really sad. I will always say that I'm black because it disrupts, like I've got a weird name that I'm very proud of um, and you've probably, you know, like oh, yeah. even if people don't know, they got to know, you know, it's, it's right there in yeah. the name and like we've all got, you
1: know, really cool
3: names. Um,
1: I don't have my racial identifiers in my bios online. Um, and I haven't really interrogated it that much. I just felt like a bit uncomfortable. I never thought that it was that important to the work that I was writing. because I, well, the kind of poetry that I've published so far doesn't explicitly talk about my racial background. But um, I recently did get like a larger bio published online. And in that one, because it's like an extended version of my one paragraph bio, I was like, OK, I would like to include this because it's my kind of biographical details. It's my history. Um, And I think that's relevant, like, when it's an actual biography of yourself. But whereas for, like, a bio about the writing, like, I want the writing to shine. And I, like I said before, I want, you know, writing by writers of color to be unexceptional.
2: Like I said, I only put mine in because I hear a lot of Islamophobic, Arab-phobic, African-phobic shit all the time. And I'd rather just have, you know, off the bat so I don't have to hear it. Like, it is, it isn't, I purposely put it in every single bio because I just don't want to have to fucking deal with it. Um, But that's, but that's, it's not because... Because honestly, my race is not the most interesting thing about me. It does give me great hair, but it's not the most interesting thing about me, so.
3: And, like, maybe it's different being in Australia as well, like being a settler. Like, I I think it's important, like, being a First Nation, I'm you know, I'm from here, so any chance to make white people wrap their tongues or their minds around our words and like, I'm not an Australian person, like, I'm... I have my own nations that I'm from. I don't identify as an Australian. So those things are ways to disrupt that. Um, But, yeah, if we spent... So I'm really interested in, like, race and, like, writing about race and colonisation. And if we all spent time explaining... I feel like my understanding of race... Like, I don't think I'm necessarily the most nuanced person. But I think compared to the average white reader... I'm probably about up here and they're down here. So if I spend all my time trying to catch people up here to maybe come here, like I feel like I'm better off spending my time trying to further my own understanding and go up, um, instead of trying to catch up people who might, it might take them 20 years to truly understand. So I think it's about being strategic. Like, what are you trying to get out of this piece? Who are you trying to... What actions do you want them to take? Or what do you want them to understand? Who are you writing for? So if it sometimes... And Tanahasi Coates mentioned it a couple of weeks ago when he was in Melbourne. Like, sometimes he decides to explain things to people. Like, he... I think the thing he spoke about was um, why black people can use the N-word and others cannot. And he said, like, it was a strategic thing to write down to people but for the most part he's like you know trying to push the discourse or whatever um so yeah sometimes that might mean explaining things but other times not I think so for me it's not so much about writing about race I'm fine it's more like will this actually do anything is it like do we need another fucking op-ed around Australia Day no we don't like they've all been done I, I may have done one. I don't remember. Like we, I think some. Once again, it's like you know, it already exists out there. It's actually a fucking waste of time to talk about Scott Morrison's like comments about Australia Day. It's there. There is no nothing to be gained from engaging with a fuckwit around something so stupid. You know, it, you're banging your head against a wall. Um, I was. I would much rather people spend their time talking about deaths in custody and more substantive things. So it's not so much the race thing, it's the, like, if it's just another stupid piece about something in the culture wars, like, fuck off, it's not important, there's enough of that. And, like, sure, do that. And I think when you're starting out as a writer, it can be really easy to engage in that sort of stuff. Um, and sometimes I still think it is important too, but, yeah, the like, black people will often get asked, like, I got a call from the project while I was getting my hair done last week to talk about Scott Morrison um, and, like, his Australia Day comments. So it's like, you know, and there's a whole bunch of us that will get called to talk about or write about this really stupid shit when we would probably much rather spend our time pushing things a bit further and not talking, you know, talking to these fucking dummies. So, um, yeah. I think
1: that also sometimes... Like, it, I don't really like being singled out to, to write about my own experience. Um, thankfully, the only times that I've been, like, commissioned to write work, it's usually been about something that I've actually accomplished, like, my, my, my studies. Um, and even in those times, like, sometimes I don't want to write about what I've studied or, or whatever. Um, but also, I have to weigh up with myself whether or not I am, the right, like, the right person to talk about that issue. And sometimes I think, you know, maybe I am best placed to write about something. And I mean, it's not like swallowing my pride. Sometimes it's just, I don't really want to write about it because I'm bored by it. Like, (laughs) but sometimes nobody else is going to be able to elucidate that matter better than me. And I think, you know, maybe it is my duty to do that, even if it's kind of boring.
2: I'm in two minds. I think if you need money um, and as a writer, like I think take opportunities where you can that will actually pay you well enough that you can like fight through the sick feeling through your stomach doing it sometimes your rent is due you know um but apart from that like again I think that just comes back to just having a really shit editor or a shit commissioning editor um because they should when I like the very few times I commission people I look for people who this is your actual area of interest like if I wanted oh I don't know like, if I wanted somebody to talk about, to write something about Fraser Anning's fucking islamophobic comments, I would not just pick the first Muslim that I saw. I would not just, like, pick, like, oh, you've written it. Like, oh, you know, I've heard you say something about that before. I'd pick somebody, like, who I know has something, like, passionately wants to talk about this. Um, and I think, yeah, I think it comes down to, like, figuring. A lot of it comes down to edit trusting... Trusting editor relationships. Do you trust this editor to actually care about what you're saying? Have they picked you for beyond? Like sometimes they do. Sometimes I do pick people based on their race. But it's not because it's like, hey, you're friggin' like Arab. Write this thing about Arabs. It's because I know that you love to talk about it. Like this is actually your strong specialization, your strong area of interest. Um, it It is not a matter of going up to the first person I see or even the second or whatever. Like it's about understanding the writer's body of work so that's something i look at when i'm commissioning so if you've been commissioned, if you if you feel like you're being tokenized you probably are um and if it doesn't sit right with you go with your gut like if it doesn't sit right with you don't do it again unless you've got rent to pay um <laughs> but yeah um I don't know, it comes down to do you trust this editor who's commissioned you to do this?
1: I think this is a like a place where we can draw and support networks of other writers and editors of color because I think that like the Facebook groups that I'm in, I think we should just be asking, like, is this common to everyone else's experience to just not be edited by this publication? Because if it's like a if it's a targeted thing, like they don't know how to edit your work, then that's something that has to be addressed. But
2: yeah, I think we can use other people's experiences
1: to help yeah, guide us.
2: I mean, the only, other, the only other way to, like, really challenge it, and this is not an individual thing, this is a community, social, society thing, um, push until we get editors of colour in the door, push yeah. until we get publishers of colour, push until we get fucking CEOs of colour, um, until the right people are in the right spots, because if they can't, like, And, yeah, like, I get the white fear of not having enough cultural competency to do the job, in which case my response has always been, so perhaps you should not be doing it instead of just ignoring it and not editing, like... Because you have a job to do. Like, you can... And absolutely white people can edit, and they do um, edit, and some of them do a great job. Some of them actually come from a, like, decent place of understanding, but it's... Are you taking up a space? And so I think to... I think it's a systemic issue, and I think it doesn't fall on one individual. Like, you can push back on your individual articles, but it has to be – we have to have a fundamental shift in the way the publishing industry works. Otherwise, we're going to be having these conversations for the next 20 fucking years. And I'm already – I've only been having these conversations for five years, and I'm really sick of them. So, yeah. yeah. that's
1: all the time we have. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.
0: If you enjoyed that session of the National Young Writers Festival, it happens every year on Labor Day weekend, so around September 27-28, I think it is, in Newcastle. For more information, go to their website, www.youngwritersfestival.org, and you'll be able to find everything you need to know about the festival itself, get tickets, find out about the artists, and we found it to be one of the most dynamic, inclusive, and fun festivals we attended last year we can't wait to be doing it again this year and this year we're even going to be setting up the national young writers festival podcast feed all of its very own so keep an eye out for that as well but in the meantime if you want to keep hearing the sessions from the 2018 festival and there are some really great ones coming up then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to rights for festivals or go to www rightsforwomen.com and that's the website where you'll find all of the Rights for Festivals episodes including the Feminist Writers Festival, Mudgy Writers Festival, Story Fest and of course the National Young Writers Festival. And there will be many more to come throughout this year as well. Hope you enjoy it. Don't forget to like our Facebook page and follow along at Rights for Festivals. And um, we'll hit you up again soon with another fantastic and playful episode from the National Young Writers Festival. This podcast episode was recorded, produced and edited by Kel Butler from Listen Up Podcasting.